Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. Today, our guest is Taylor Elwood from MagicalExperiments.com and author of The Process of Magic, A Guide How Magic Works, Manifesting Wealth, Practical Magic for Prosperity, Love, and Health, The Magic of Art, How to Use Sacred Art and Practical Magic to Get Results, How to Troubleshoot Your Magic, to get better results with practical magic and magic by design. How to create your own practical magic working workings and get results. Thank you for being on my podcast, Taylor. Thank you. Yeah. And that's only a few of the books. I've actually written a ton of them, uh, a ton more than just that. And I have my next book coming out this, uh, this uh, next week uh, as oh, well. So what's, there what's, you the go. Next, what's the next one? Uh, the next one's going to be called Walking with Magical, uh, Magical Entities, and it's, it's going to explore how to create and work with magical entities, egregores, and, uh, and how, to, how to work with them to get results, but also really how to, how to work with them over the long term. You know, a lot of people create entities in the short term, but I like to take a long-term approach with my magic, and so I think that uh, it's, a, it's a different take on the topic, and hopefully people will find it uh, interesting and fascinating. And can all your books be found on MagicalExperiments.com? They can. Yep, you can find them on MagicalExperiments.com. Uh, most of them are also available on, uh, of course, uh, Amazon.com, but also Barnes & Nobles or uh, Kobo or any other online uh, site where you're inspired to go shopping. Okay. What I'll do is I'll definitely post a link on this interview to your website. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. And you also teach classes. Is that correct? I do. I have a, uh, a teachable uh, website where I have different classes on there, which includes some different topics, stuff ranging from how to work with magical entities to sigil magic to uh, wealth magic and business magic and any anything else that you might be interested in. And uh, so if you want to check those uh, classes out, you can. And they're all reasonably priced. They're not going to cost you an arm and a leg <laughs> or your soul. <laughs> there's, no, there's, no signing, there's no signing on the dotted line or anything like that. You don't need to worry about that. So I don't have to write my name in blood? No, you don't. Not unless you really want to. I mean, that's on you. But I'm not, I don't expect it. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time I have. <laughs> um, so how did you get into magic in the occult? Um, I have, I've had an interest in magic since as long as I can remember, uh, you know, as a kid, I was drawn to reading fantasy books. And so, you know, I started reading, of course, the Hobbit and, um, and Lord of the Rings, but then I ended up reading uh, Dragonlance uh, books that were coming out. I mean, this is back in like the eighties and nineties to kind of date myself a little bit here. Uh, and, um, I was always fascinated with it. And then in 1993, when I was 16 years old, I had, um, I had this one guy sit me down in high school and he said to me, you know, I, I went on this astral projection journey and I encountered, uh, some demons and he was doing this cause he noticed that I like to read fantasy. So he wanted to see how I would react. And so the last thing he expected was for me to look at him quite earnestly and say, where can I learn more? I think he was the one who was surprised and startled instead of me. And so he, uh, the next day he brought in a couple books and I started reading about magic and that's what really got me into it and, and really what compelled me to get into it was that, you know, I had a lot of questions and those, those questions couldn't be answered by reading the Bible. I'd been a, a, a Christian for a while at that point, but I wasn't really, I just wasn't really, I, I, I never really felt at home with that particular religious belief. And so I, uh, you know, as I started reading these books on magic and started realizing, you know, here's, here's a way for me to find some answers to my questions and a way to look at life differently, I became really um, excited about it and started delving into it. And that's, that's how I started learning and practicing magic. Any books early on have a profound influence on you? You know, I would say that um, reading some of Ted Andrews books early on were really, was really helpful. In fact, I just, I just finished rereading the very first book that I ever read um, called how to, 
how to how to work with how to meet and work with spirit guides. I'm actually in the process of writing my next book on magic as well. So I was I've been reading uh, some different books on how different people work with spirits, and so uh, that was one of the books I was reading. And then uh, Enchantments of the Fairy Realm, and then I would say also. Um, you know, William G. Gray's uh, works um, on magic, magical ritual methods, inner traditions of magic have definitely played a significant role in my magical practice. And, uh, you know, I, I encountered him a little bit later into my magical practice, but I would still say all things considered, that was still fairly, fairly early on. I mean, it was like into like late 1990s, you know, like five years into it. And I practiced magic over 25 years at this point. So, that's still early on in the in the magical career, as as the saying might go. Um, did you ever have like a teacher or belong to a coven or secret society? I've never belonged to a secret society, and if I did, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I I really haven't, and I never joined a coven. Um, I self taught myself magic from the beginning. I, I did have a couple of early teacher uh, experiences, but they weren't great experiences because and like they were just people who didn't really, who really shouldn't have been qualified to be teachers. Unfortunately, I recognized that pretty quickly. Um, and now within recent years, I actually do have a couple of people that I would call mentors um, and, and that I work with. Uh, one, RJ Stewart has uh, written fair number of books and he he was actually a student of William G. Gray's himself and I found that his system of magic his tradition works well with a lot of the stuff that I do and then um, of late I've been doing a lot of work with Bruce Francis who's a Taoist uh, master and uh, does a lot of like teaches a lot of meditation and Qigong practices and uh, those are also things that I consider to be part of, of my spiritual practice but I still, I still have a lot of work that I do on my own. I still, I still self-teach myself. I mean, these are people I respect and work with. I do call them mentor, and I do that out of a place of great respect for, you know, their their wisdom and experience and what they have to offer. But I mean, at the end of the day, I'm my own best teacher, and it's it's what I tell people who read my books and who interact with me on my Facebook group and things like that. Is that I mean, you know anyone who's a teacher is really at best meant to be a guide, you know, they're, they're meant to point the way and, and show, you know, give you some things to think about, but you have to be your own authority and your own teacher and, uh, and, and really be someone who is responsible for your own education. And that's, that's really the way that I look at things and how I try to share that with my own students, but certainly how I apply it even with what I learned from other people. Cause as much as I respect you know, the people that I work with who I consider to be mentors, sometimes I don't agree with them on their perspectives. And that's also part of growing and learning. Absolutely. Um, I know one thing about magic and the occult is there's a lot of myths surrounding it and a lot of mystery, um, you know, like sacrificing virgins, orgies, eating babies, stuff like that. Um, where did that come from? Is any of that true? Um, I would say a lot of that originated from from Christianity attempting to demonize different religious or spiritual practices that aren't Christian. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, there there's an unfortunate tendency for, um, you know, people to sometimes create these lurid myths uh, about things like sacrificing virgins and eating babies and things like that. And a lot of it is, is, is just that it's just a myth. I mean, you know, I haven't, I haven't ever sacrificed a virgin. I, I certainly don't intend to. It's, there's no, nothing really appealing about it. And as for eating babies, I think the closest I've come to eating a baby is eating a baby back rib. You know, I mean, baby back ribs are good. I'll eat those, but eating, eating babies just doesn't really strike me as being all that appetizing and I'm not a cannibal. And as for orgies, well, you know, I mean, don't get me don't get me wrong. We all have our our sexual escapades and fun, but I haven't I haven't been to any ritual orgies in my life. So you know, I think 
I think on that last part, you know, maybe the Christians are wishfully wishing that they could actually partake in that, but they would probably be <laughs> surprised, you know. I mean, there's not saying there isn't any truth to that last one, but I mean, certainly not anything that I've uh, participated in. So, you know, I, I mean, they're myths and you have to use your own best judgment. And the best way to do that really is to do your own research, ask questions and, 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 and you know, challenge what you know by discovering what you can learn. That's, that's really the best thing I would put it is that, you know, a lot of people they get caught up in what they think they know and they, that becomes blinders for them. And the best way to challenge that is to learn new stuff and to really challenge what you think, you know, in order to discover if there's any truth to it, or if, if in fact there might be something else that you could learn. Well, I will make sure that I invite you to my next orgy. Okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Anytime. <laughs> what is the difference between your style of magic versus the more traditional golden dawn type of system? Well, I would say, I, I, ironically enough, I actually did, um, did, did start out with some golden dawn um, magical work in my teenage years. And, uh, you know, I worked through the, uh, the Cicero um, books on the topic and, and actually did all the stuff and, and, you know, found it interesting. And I, I would say really that my, my style of magic is really based on, uh, is actually based on a very firm foundation of understanding how magic works. And that's been gained by learning these different systems and traditions, such as the Golden Dawn stuff, such as William G. Gray's work or Franz Barden or some of these other different people that have been, you know, that have shared their own systems and practices. And, and really what it is, is just kind of a, a synthesis of those different, of those different, practices as well as some insights and creative approaches of my own really the way that i look at magic is that if you understand the fundamentals of magic you quickly begin to realize that there's a lot of it that can be swapped out you know you have you have stuff where you can basically say okay i'm working with a traditional deity here but what I could do using these same practices is swap that out and work with a pop culture spirit. And you could, and you could get results. And I think a lot of times where people get caught up on, get caught up on the differences, they're really focused more on the image of magic and less on the actual substance and depth of magic. Because if you have a solid understanding of the principles of magic, then you should be able to swap out whatever it is you're working in and still be able to get consistent results. And if you're not getting consistent results, that's where you want to take a look at why that's the case. Like what is missing? And I'm going to tell you dollars to donuts every time it's usually the person lacks a fundamental understanding of the, the process of magic of, of how magic works. And once you get that understanding into place, the sky's the limit. Hmm. Um, so I have a double-edged question here. What are the fundament fundamental parts of magic that everybody should know? And what is pop culture magic? Like, how does that fit into it? Sure. Um, well, the, you know, the fundamental principles of magic really kind of boils down to if you're doing a magical working, what are the things that are in common with that magical working that you're going to find across the board? You know, taking, taking out the cultural stuff that may, you know, there may be specific cultural contexts. We'll, we'll acknowledge that and we'll put that to the side. What do we see? So, for example, you look at a given magical working, there's always a result. Now, that result might be a practical result or it might be a result, of divine, a result that we're looking for for divine communion or something else along those lines. But whatever it is, it's going to be something that is fundamental to, to that magical working. And then you look at what else comes into play. So with a magical working, you're going to do, you define, you figure out what your result is. Now you have to figure out what steps you're going to take. Are you going to work with spirits? Okay. If you're going to work with spirits, are you invoking them or evoking them? Regardless of what you're doing, you have to be able to connect with those spirits. So connection has to be a fundamental principle of magic as another example of something going on there. Or let's say you're going to do an enchantment of some type. You're going to do a sigil magic or something else along those lines. 
you know, what's the, what's the causative relationship between that sigil magic working and how it connects to you getting that result? What are the things that are happening to make that, to make that result occur? These are the things that I talk about when I explore the process of magic. And when you, when you learn these principles, it changes your, your perspective of magic because suddenly you're looking at it from a perspective of, well, what really works as opposed to what's, what's just image. And so let's, let's talk then about pop culture magic as a good example of this. So pop culture magic is really the integration of pop culture into magical practices with the understanding that if I can work with a deity or, or a, a spirit such an, as an angel or a demon or or fairy or whatever else, I can take those same principles and apply that to pop culture and I ought to be able to get similar results. I ought to be able to connect with a pop culture spirit such as Harry Potter or, or um, Raistolin Majir from Dragonlance or something else along those lines and I ought to be able to connect and in some way or another have a meaningful connection that allows me to achieve something. Or I should be able to take something from pop culture. And if I understand how practical magic works, I should be able to apply the, the, the pop culture to those practical magical principles and be able to generate, create a practical magic technique that helps me get results and allows me to, to use pop culture as a way to do that. So that's really, that, 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 that's kind of how I look at magic in general is I, I look at it in terms of, how, how are we going about getting results? What are the principles that are at play? How can we take, how can we take traditional occult narratives and, and practices and techniques and apply it? Sure, but how can we take other stuff, other disciplines and ideas and practices and apply those in a meaningful way? And I'll, I'll use this as another example here. I, I am in the process of researching this, this book on spirits. So one of the things that I'm looking at is how, in relationship to spirits, is how people understand and connect with space, the space around them. Because if you think about a home, a home has a very specific space to it. And it has a very specific energy to it. And, and we have a way of navigating and moving through that space and connecting with it and associating it with this concept of home. Well, we can take that same understanding and apply it toward our work with spirits and find that it changes our understanding and perspective of those spirits because we're, we're necessarily looking at it from an angle that we haven't considered, where we're actually looking at, well, what does constitute the relationship that a spirit has with me? How does space play an interaction or, or a role in that kind of relationship? So those are, those are just kind of some of the ways that I think about magic and how I approach things and, and why, let's be honest here, I'm a little bit of a eccentric when it comes to the magical community as well. Um, so with pop culture magic, would I be able to conjure Gandalf? Yeah, you could work with Gandalf. I mean, you could come up with, you could come up with a... A, a chant for Gandalf, a sigil or seal for Gandalf, what have you, and you should be able to connect with Gandalf and, and be able to work with Gandalf in some way that is meaningful to you and helps you with whatever goals you're trying to shoot for. Does this connect any way with just simply uh, maybe using like imagination and connecting with archetypes? Um, definitely. I mean, when most people think of imagination, they think of imagination as something like childlike imagination, right? Like a kid, right. you know, imagining an invisible friend. Although if you think about it, that's a very magical act in and of itself. But really, I mean, our imagination is sacred. It is, it is a way for us to connect with the probabilities of the world and allow us to transform those, those probabilities into reality. And the same thing applies where, where we're connecting with, with spirits. If we can, if, if we can allow our imagination, if, if, if we can think of imagination as really a form, of, a, a form of consciousness that allows us to connect with the unseen world in ways that allows us to apprehend and comprehend that that's outside the traditional narratives of everyday reality, 
what we begin to discover is that we can connect with these, you know, with quote unquote fictional spirits. Sometimes what I find is really when it comes to the whole thing of a fictional spirit is that really it's no different than when you're dealing with mythology. You look at, you look at Greek mythology, for example. I mean, this is, this is the pop culture of Greek, of, of Grecian culture. You know, you had your stories about Zeus, your stories about Achilles, et cetera, et cetera. What's the real difference between that and pop culture now? Now, some people will say, well, they had occultists and, and there was, you know, specific practices, et cetera, et cetera. And my answer to that would be, well, why can't we do that same thing with pop culture? Why can't we connect with a pop culture fictional character in just as much a meaningful way? Do we, do we really even have proof per se that one is better than the other, or are we just valuing one because it's been around longer? And what's really interesting is that if you look at even, if you look at even at, at ancient mythology and you look at how ancient mythology has woven its way into pop culture, I mean, look at, look at Marvel, for example, with Thor, or look at how the Grecian myths have been woven into stuff like such as God of War. Now, some people will say, well, that's, that's still pop culture and how sacrilegious are you? But here's the thing. You look at any spirit or any deity and it's going and, and you realize there's a symbiotic connection with, you know, it has a symbiotic connection with us. It needs attention. It needs worship, whatever else. Well, you know what? They're going to find ways to uh, make that happen. And if that means pervading the, the, the pop culture of our times and taking on different, um, you know, finding a way to stay relevant in that way to interact with, with people, they'll do it because that's a reasonable way to go about getting that kind of attention and, uh, and, and, and creating a gateway, you know, for people to discover more about them. So really, I mean, I think that, you know, when you, when you look at imagination, ma- imagination itself is really a, a doorway, a gateway to the hidden, the hidden world and to the, to the hidden potential of the world and to the spirits and a way for us to work with them. So what this kind of reminds me of, um, at least like for me, like back in the eighties and nineties, um, there were people that were using like HP Lovecraft type of stuff for magic and chaos magic and, and stuff like that. So it's mm-hmm. kind of similar to that, I would think. Well, sure. I mean, HP Lovecraft is a great example of early pop culture. You know, I mean, you look at the Necronomicon, you know, book that ended up actually getting written and, and, and stuff. I mean, people were, people obviously connected to something and he connected to something as well. And the fact that people are able to, you know, create magical workings around Cthulhu and all, all, all that particular mythology speaks to that as well. And that, and that's really the thing. I mean, we, we live in a mythological world and it's, it, it's, it's something where the main difference is that, that how we consume that mythology is different. You know, we consume it now in the forms of, of, of books and st- in oral stories, certainly but we also consume it in the form of video games and TVs and movies and comic books and things like that. And, and some people would say, well, that kind of stuff dulls the imagination. And I would argue not necessarily. I mean, you know, all things in moderation. I mean, I, I play, I play video games. I watch TV shows. It doesn't stop me from being able to imagine different things or, or come up with new techniques or practice magic or any of that. So I think, you know, what it really boils down to is that you, if you open yourself up to the possibility that something could be real, you might just be surprised to discover that it actually is. Interesting. Um, I noticed that, like you talk a little bit about Taoism and Buddhism, stuff like that. Um, I, actually, I wrote a book on Buddhism myself. It's called Enlightenment Guaranteed. No, oh, cool. Um, yeah, you can check it out sometime. It's on Amazon. But um, how does meditation connect with magic? Well, in my mind, I think that, that meditation is one of those activities that uh, someone who's serious about magic should be practicing it every day. And the reason why is because if nothing else, meditation forces you to do internal work. And internal work is essential because if you're not able to own your reactions and your issues and work through them, 
that in and of itself is going to muddy up the water a lot of the time for people. And, and I say this as someone who, you know, when I first started practicing magic, I didn't know about meditation. I knew, you know, I tried, it, I, I tried a few different techniques from books that I read, but I didn't really know anything about meditation. And, and so probably for the first, you know, 10 years or so of my magical practice, I would say that a lot of my magic was more reactive than anything else. You know, I had a problem come into my life. I did magic to solve it. And I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people who practice magic end up getting, you know, into that, that kind of mentality at times. And that's okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It just is what it is. But in the case of with, with meditation, you know, once you really begin a meditative practice, you find that it transforms your, um, your magical practice quite significantly because what ends up happening is you start working through the internal issues and the triggers and things like that. And it starts changing how you approach situations. You know, I found, I found that as I went deeper and deeper into magical work, the amount of time that, or, or and, and deeper and deeper into meditation, the less, the less I needed to do magic to solve problems because I began solving the problems within myself. And that's not even including, you know, the aspect of, of working like with, with the Tao in terms of, you know, Taoist meditation in terms of like physical health or working with it in terms of just experiencing a sense of oneness or communion with the world. All of these things are also important in magical practice. And some of them are not emphasized enough. I mean, uh, you know, again, I think that anyone who's practicing magic really ought to be doing some type of physical activity each day to get in touch with their bodies and when it comes to, you know, achieving communion with the world around you and achieving a sense of oneness and connection, how better to really bring that into your spiritual practice than to actually experience that and recognize the importance of it and how it changes your approach to life. You know, I, I'll use myself as an example today. I, I had a little bit of a bad day at work, you know. Um, I was, uh, you know, I dealt with some customers that were a little irritable. I do customer, I, I do customer support. And so, you know, I was, I was dealing with that. And then I had some other stuff and ended up meditating. And I, what I ended up really working through, I, I'd happened to, right before I meditated, I happened to pull out this book called The Courage to Be Disliked. And I opened it up. And I read this passage that, passage that said, you know, you, you create the complications in your life. And I meditated on that, and I realized that's exactly what I was doing. Here I was getting all bent out of sorts about some phone calls, a broken window, whatever else. And here I was creating complication in my life. And by meditating, I let that go. I let go of the need to be in control and I focused on just being and what that and where I came away from that was just a greater sense of peace and focus because I realized, okay, that's, this is what I can do with this situation and how I can take this and I can adjust and adapt to it and, and roll with it and focus on what really matters, such as getting ready for this podcast interview tonight. You know, one thing I learned about from, from meditation and it was really a huge change for me. The more I leave shit alone, the better things work out. That's a great way to put it. That is absolutely perfect. You know, because really when you, when you learn to let go of that need to be in control and you learn to flow with it, flow with the current and work with it, you actually get to where you want to go a lot quicker than when you try to force your will on it. And that's something that I, that's something I learned a few years ago, actually, and it radically changed my magical practice because, you know, I, I mean, a lot of Western magic in all fairness is really kind of like, you know, people trying to impose their will on stuff, trying to control things, trying to make things happen. And at a certain point, it just gets really exhausting. But when you learn to just let go and trust that, you know, you're going to get where you need to go. And that, you, you know, maybe you take a different approach where you, you work with the current and you align things together so that things come together a bit smoother than maybe they would otherwise. But you at the same time realize you don't need to be terribly invested in, in, in the actual thing. You just, you just trust it and let go and, and, you know, you do what you can 
you do your magical working, for example, but you really let things go and let things happen and adjust and adapt, you'll get where you want to go. Absolutely. So here's the question I'm sure all my listeners are wondering. Can I quit my day job and just manifest money out of thin air? Oh, man, you know, if, if, if that was the case, do you think I'd be working at the day job I'm working at now? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's really, here's, here's the thing about magic that I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, magic requires work. A lot of people buy into the Hollywood notion of magic, you know, and, 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 and this is, this, you know, we were talking about pop culture magic earlier, so I know it's kind of ironic for me to say this, but it's true. You know, people, go, people want special effects magic. You know, they want a fireball that they're going to conjure out of the air, or they want, you know, they want money out of thin air or whatever else. But, I mean, magic, magic is work. You know, you, you, do magical, you do a magical working, and you are, you are, you know, putting your effort and whatever else there out into the world to manifest your result. And the same thing is true, you know, with, with money. I actually do a fair amount of um, wealth magic right now. In, um, and I'm doing it, I, I, I'm basically working my way out of my day job. I've gotten to the point now with what I'm doing, you know, uh, on the side. My side hustle is actually making more money than my day job is. It's not making enough money yet to entirely replace it because, you know, you got to factor in business expenses, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, but the thing is, is, you know, I've, I've been doing, I've been doing some, some wealth magic around it, but that mel- that wealth magic has necessarily had to incorporate in things that I've been doing, like such as running online ads in order to generate more business and, you know, taking the time to write books and things like that. And people say, well, I mean, well, that's great, Taylor, but I mean, what you're talking about is mundane, doing mundane activities, Where's the magic in that? And the answer to that is, quite frankly, that, you know, the most effective magic is, is the magic that marries mundane actions to the magical work and creates the path of least resistance. I mean, I could do, let's say I did a wealth magic working without, without, any, without um, taking any of that into account. I'm going to have one of two things happen. I'm either going to have nothing happen because I haven't done anything you know, I haven't gone out there and gotten a job or I haven't gone out there and, and you know, um, tried to start my business up or whatever else. I haven't created a path of least resistance or or what will end up happening is that path of least resistance will manifest in the form of, say, a relative dying. And, you know, like your, your dad died, your dad suddenly ups and croaks and you inherit a bunch of money. And let me tell you, it's, it's, uh, that, that, is not, that is not a situation I would wish on anyone. It's not a situation I, I've ever worked toward or would want in my life because aside from the fact that then you, you always have to question, well, did that person potentially die because I was doing this magical work and, and I wasn't willing to apply myself in any other way? Um, you know, and that's, that's what I got. It's also even just the fact of the matter is like, you know, there are, there are just better and easier ways to go about doing things, certainly easier ways to live with it. And so when I, you know, when I talk about this path of least resistance, I really look at it from the perspective of, all right, in the case of my wealth magic, and I'll use a very concrete example here in my office cubicle, I have, I, I created a wealth magic working around a magnet and uh, the use of gravity. So I have a magnet and I hung it upside down on the metal shelf of my, um, of my cubicle. And on it, I put a bunch of metal balls and stars and moons. This, this was the stuff that I'd want in the office. Mm-hmm. And the way it works is it works with the elements of gravity and magnetism. Um, you know, the gravity pulls the balls down but the magnet, the magnet actually attracts them so that they're hanging somewhat suspended. And, and, and how I set it up is that I would basically start attracting more sales, you know, more book sales, more class sales, what have you. Um, and that at the same time, um, that, that, that the gravity would, quote unquote, draw people in, you know, help them, you know, learn more about me, um, you know, buy more, buy more books, get to, you know, get a, you know, really uh, create, if you will, a, a community of sorts around the work too. And um, it, and, and at the same time, I also applied this to my, to my job because we have to get so many leads 
uh, at the job, you know, and when you get leads, you get things that are also, you get like reward points as well. And I thought, well, why not double dip this? So I want to get more leads as well. After I created this working, and this was, this was in the fall of um, 2019, that's when I started to notice that my, that, that, that's when I, that's when I broke my, it was actually in September. That's when I broke my first $1,000 for book sales. Like I was making $1,000, at least $1,000 a month after that every single month. So ever since then, I've, you know, I've, and I've actually improved every single month. Like, you know, so like this last, last couple months, I've, I've gone over $3,000 for book sales and that's just book sales alone. That's not including classes or anything else. And at the same time, I started getting a lot more leads at my job, which meant that I got more reward points, which meant that, you know, for example, I could exchange those reward, reward points for Amazon gift certificates and, um, and get a lot of book and, and get a ton of books and other things without having to pay a dime for it. So, you know, I share that as an example of, of a path of least resistance because I still had to be involved in that. I still had to, for example, be able to convince people as to why they would want to invest in training for their software. This is in the context of my customer report jo- or customer um, support job, right? I had to mm-hmm. convince them of that. I had to share with them why they might want to do that. I just, you know, and in the case of the book sales and things like that, you know, I still had to write the books. I still had to be putting the ads up and writing the copy and everything else. It's just that the magic worked through that. And, you know, that, that's really the way that I look at any magic is you've, you've got to look at like, how does it all connect together? How does it come together? What is it that you need to be doing on the mundane level as well as on the magical level? So that working is still working, is still working away and it's, it's, it's doing great. But of course, I'm also contributing my part. And I think a lot of magicians will not, will not speak to that, which I think is pretty odd in and of, of itself, you know, it's, and, and it, it actually reinforces that Hollywood notion of magic. But in my case, I'm just, a, I'm an extremely practical person and I have no problem saying at the end of the day, like, here's what I've done mundane wise. Here's what I've done magically. Here's how I've tied it all together in order to get X, Y, and Z. So it's almost like you have a combination of, of meditating and letting things go. Um, some positive thinking and that's all followed up with just simple everyday action. I mean, that's a good way to sum, sum up a lot of it. I mean, there's more to it than just that. But I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I, that I take a very eclectic approach to magic. I mean, you know, I, I'm also not one to put a ton, a huge ton of effort. Like you're, I've done ceremonial magic. I've had the robes and I've had the, you know, the ritual tools and all that. And I, I, I don't do that anymore. I mean, not that it doesn't work, but I found other ways to get that to work for me. You know, for me, uh, you know, a, a ritual looks like me pulling out a cord and lighting up a candle and then, and then chanting some memorized chants, you know, chants that I've memorized. And then there's a fair amount of effort in that. But I'm not pulling out a sword. I'm not doing any of that other stuff. And again, I'm not knocking anyone who wants to do that, you know, or, or, or knocking the fact that they might be getting results or whatever else. But, you know, at the same time, I'm getting results too. And, and at the end of the day, if we really want to evaluate it, it really boils down to, are you getting results that are transforming your life? Are you getting where you want to go? Are you, and are you, for that matter, if you really want to take it even further, are you designing your life the way you want it to be? Because really, the way that I approach magic is that it's about life design. Am I, am I, am I living the life that I want to live? Am I gradually creating and manifesting this life that's getting me where I want to go. And if, if the results are consistently coming in and they're demonstrating that, yes, you're getting where you want to go, then that speaks in and of itself to exactly to the fact that that's exactly what you want to be doing. Um, when you're working with spirits, do you consider mm-hmm. them an external energy entity or um, something in the psyche? Um, I consider them to be external um, entities. I, I don't I don't buy into the psychological model of magic at all. I think it really dilutes magic, and it 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 it, it ends up having it, it ends up being one of those things where it's all in your head. And when it's all in your head, 
you begin to doubt what you're doing. And when you doubt what you're doing, that weakens what you're doing. In my case, whether it's a pop culture spirit or a traditional spirit or whatever else, I consider them to have an external existence. I consider them to have a symbiotic connection with, with me and with you. I mean, with humanity in general, I mean, there's, you know, there's definitely, they, they're, they're definitely benefiting on some level or another, or they wouldn't be working with us, but I, I don't see them as psychological extensions of ourselves. Um, do you ever have to make offerings or, or make deals with these spirits? Um, I do. I do make offerings. My offerings typically show up in the form of my art or in the form of writing about them. Um, sometimes it's a bit more traditional, a bit of, uh, you know, maybe a bit of wine or food or, or what have you. Uh, really what I find, and, and, and I think, again, this is something that, that speaks to the variability of working with spirits is, you know, you connect with the spirit, you find out, like, what does it really want? And then you, if you, and, and you tell it what you want, and then you decide if that's mutually agreeable. And if it is, you follow through on your end. If that's, if that means that you're making offerings of some type, then, then great. If that means that, you know, like a food or wine, if it means that you're writing articles or, or something else, then that's fine too. I, I find that spirits, that, that, that spirits actually are interested in your talents as much as anything else. And that sometimes if you share with them that you're willing to, you know, that you're willing, for example, to write an article about a spirit or do a video about a spirit, because that's one of your talents, that that actually can be just as valuable to the spirit as, say, a traditional offering. Again, it just depends on how you approach working with spirits, and there's nothing wrong with doing a traditional offering, but there's also nothing wrong with exploring alternate ways that you could do offerings. So I don't have to, like, cut myself and have my blood drip into a cauldron of fire? You really don't. I mean, if you want to, that you can. I mean, if that's your thing, but you absolutely do not have to. No, I just wanted to, I always wanted to say that. <laughs> well, there you go. You got to say it with me. <laughs> uh, what is a egregore? An egregore basically is a, 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 a spirit, if you will, that has become um, and, and, and it's a spirit that you, you might say is, you know, has been created by humans that has become independent of them. So, for example, uh, an egregore could be the spirit of a corporation, you know, like Nike as, a, as an egregore or Intel. Um, an egregore could be the spirit of a nation. So, for example, the U.S. has its own spirit. It's terribly conflicted right now, but it does have one. Um, you know, or like, um, or, or any other country for that matter. Um, an egregore, an egregore can also, an egregore can really be, um, really anything that has been worked with to the point that it has become sufficiently, sufficiently independent. Like there's a good example of one called Photemicus, which was, uh, originally a time entity that was created by this one fellow and, Evidently, enough people worked with it that it became that, as far as he was concerned, it became an egregore because it it was no longer reliant upon him per se. You know, it could work with other people. I mean, really, you you could ultimately argue that any spirit is is an egregore. Um, you know, if if they're sufficiently independent enough, and and that comes down to art. That comes down to terminology. And, and, you know, whether or not you want to use that kind of terminology and, and definitions associated with such things. I always say, you know, use your words carefully and decide, you know, whether that word has a particular value to you because what you speak is, is magic in and of itself. Could, um, in a Gregor Gore, I, or what was I going to say? Actually, I'm sorry. Could Bigfoot or aliens be the result of a, Gregor Gore gone wrong? Well, I mean, they could be. In the case of the aliens, I would weigh that out with the reality, with, with the fact that it might be a combination of things. I mean, it could also be spirits choosing to appear before people in the form of aliens because they would know that that's the best way that people could relate to them. Same thing for Bigfoot. I mean, if you, you look at, if you look at like, you know, fairy lore, for example, 
you know, fairies will can, and other spirits for that matter, they can appear in the form that you can most relate to. You know, they have that variability because they're not, they're not bound to a material form in the same way that we are. So, you know, it, it could be a simply a case of, okay, this person connects with Bigfoot. That's the best way to work with him. Or, or this person connects with aliens and that's the best way to show up to her. And then of course they could have, they could actually be real. Who knows? You know, I'm not, I'm not rolling out the possibility that there's intelligent life elsewhere. Although, you know, why they've come here, that might be a question to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so are they like thought, could, could, could a thought form take on a life of its own? Something just as simple? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if you, you look at, you know, you know, the concept of a thought form actually originated out of um, the concept of a tulpa in, uh, in Tibet. And a tulpa basically is a thought form where, you know, basically a person, it's taken on a life of its own because, you know, the person who originally thought of it, you know, has, has, has worked with it to the point where it's kind of become its own, its own life. Now, um, you, you know, that's, and, and, and so that, that concept of a thought form came out of Tibet. There were um, the, the, the Theosophical Society actually kind of, and, and particularly Alexandra David Neal, who was a, who was a, a woman who traveled, in, traveled to Tibet in the late 19th century. Basically, um, you know, she brought that concept back out to the West. And that's where the thought form came from, um, or the concept of a thought form form came from so sure certainly it, it can be uh you know a thought form could become independent and could become an egregore um and then you know whether or not that's something you you want you'd have to decide on your own um it's i have a i have an interesting relationship when it comes to because i i actually you know like i said I've, i have this book coming out on on how to create magical entities and i've worked with magical entities for pretty much most of my magical practice and, you know, you, you look at like a chaos magic book and they'll tell you, you know, oh, you should dissolve an entity after a certain point. And I've never done that. I mean, I've worked, I have an entity that I've worked with since, I don't know, since the first time I created an entity. It's an, it's an entity that helps me become aware of opportunities. You know, it basically brings, it brings, it brings me awareness of opportunities and it's up to me as to whether or not I want to act, act on it or not. And so I suppose that if you think about it, this entity is probably almost 20 years old at this point. It's probably become independent enough. Still works really well for me. I've never felt a need to get rid of it or anything else. You know, I think sometimes that it, what, what I find interesting is that people get wrapped up in like, oh, well, you got to do magic this way. You got to do magic that way. And, and you know, if, if you have an entity around for so long, it's going to do X, Y, or Z. And the question is, well, why, how did you come up with that particular rule? Why? And, and, and what determines that? What's your, what, what are you bringing into that relationship? Because if there's even some level of antagonism or whatever else, you have to ask, could that actually be playing a role in how that entity is interacting with you? And if it is, maybe that's the problem instead of the fact that the entities become somewhat independent. Uh, does magic work in dreams? Um, yes. I mean, that's what lucid dreaming is, as a practice is, is a great way of exploring magic. Uh, I mean, basically, if you think about it, lucid dreaming is a magical technique, and it's also a way for you to work magic in dreams. So, you, you, yes, it definitely can work. How about using drugs like ayahuasca and DMT or just smoking weed? Well, here's my answer on that. Um, I think that under the right circumstances with the appropriate cultural practices, yes, those things could work. I think the indiscriminate use of them does not work. And a lot of times, you know, you have people who are doing it more for the sensations or the experiences as opposed to really doing, as opposed to working with those substances from a place of respect or working with the spirits that those substances are part of from a place of respect. I mean, as an example, you know, ayahuasca, there's a specific cultural context for working with ayahuasca. 
And if you're not working, if you're not working with it in that context, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say you won't get some value out of it, but you're probably not going to get the same value because you're not working with it in the right way. And, and of course, the, there also lies in the question of, of, you know, is this, are you, you know, are you engaging in cultural appropriation at that point? You know, are you going out, you go into some place and being like, oh, I want to do an ayahuasca ceremony. You're not even part of that culture. Well, you know, I'm not saying you couldn't do it. And if, if the, if the indigenous people are fine with it and they're, they're comfortable with you doing that, then, Hey, great, go for it. But the question I'm going to ask you after that is, is how is that going? How is that experience going to translate into the rest of your life? You know, mm-hmm. and again, you know, you, you want to go and do stuff. You, you, you just have to weigh out as well. Like what the potential consequences are for it. I, uh, you know, I, I, I've done the occasional entheogen. Uh, it's been a long time since I've done it and I found, I found myself better off for not doing them. Um, but you know, your mileage may vary. Right. Right. I mean, I spent about three months smoking angel dust and I actually think it made me better. There you go. <laughs> um, what do you think about the practice of sex magic? Um, I think that sex magic can be a really effective uh, form of magic, can be a very intimate form of magic, of course, even if it's just with yourself or with other people. And, you know, I mean, there's there's definitely some very useful uh, techniques out there on it and some good books on the topic. You know, it's, it's, it's certainly something that, you know, if it, as long as it's done consensually and, and you know, you, you know what you're doing. And if, if you're working with another person and, and they're, they're okay with what you're doing, I think go for it, be ethical about it and have fun. And um, how about like using things like music to put yourself into a trance? Can that be helpful? It definitely can be helpful up to a certain point. Um, when I first started practicing magic, I definitely used uh, music for that purpose. I haven't used music in years. And the reason why is that I found at a certain point that, you know, as I went deeper and deeper into meditation, that I really wanted to be more present with the actual experience happening in my body and with my body than with just hearing music that was trying to get me there. Um, I mean, that said, you know, I've had some very, I've, I've definitely had some very deep states of experience with, you know, integrating music into ritual and I definitely think that um, music has its place and can be worked with. You know, for meditation, I would say try it, try it sometimes with music and try it sometimes without and compare and contrast. Mm. You know, see, see, you know, and keep careful records. See what you learn from the experience because if you're looking at it from a, a perspective of curiosity, you're going to find that it transforms your relationship with what you're doing anyway because you're going to say, okay, well, what you know how is music helping me and how is not using music helping me you know what's leading me to deeper states Uh, in in my case i found that when i started to go deeper into my meditation practice without using that without using music it ended up becoming more of a an effective discipline tool really that helped me to discipline my mind uh further because i was no longer relying upon the music to distract the monkey mind instead i was actually having to engage and work with the monkey mind and come to better accommodations. The reason I asked that question is because I play guitar and I think some of my very first experiences with like reaching a deep state of consciousness was through just playing like picking up my guitar and just playing like a really heavy groove over and over and over again. And then, you know, sometimes like before I know it, an hour or two would pass and I'm still just in that zone. It's like, and it's like, it never even happened. It's like, I, I, I just go somewhere else completely. You had a state of flow. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and that's amazing. Like I feel the same way when I create art and when I, and when I write, um, you know, you hit that meditative state of experience and certainly the same thing applies with music and making music. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those cases where you can immerse yourself in enough, enough into an experience that that becomes its own form of meditation. And that's a powerful thing in its own right as well. 
Um, this next question is pretty deep. Okay. Do you believe that there's a God and Satan and that they're at war against each other? Well, I'm not terribly invested in the Christian paradigm. Um, you know, so do I think that, that, that uh, Jehovah exists? Sure. Uh, I don't particularly care for him and don't particularly want to work with him because, you know, he strikes me as being very insecure. Um, as for Satan, again, seems to me like Satan could exist. Do they, are they at war with each other? Maybe. Maybe they're laughing their asses off at us. <laughs> You know, either way, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I don't think that there's, I, I think, you know, I question how much of that is more of a human invention than anything else. Because when you really think about it, it becomes very convenient to use spirits as a way to control people. Well, God and Satan are fighting because you're, you're doing X, Y, and Z, and you shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. And if you weren't doing X, Y, and Z, you would be saved, or you'd be this, or you would be that. You know, it becomes a very convenient narrative as a way to control people. And you always have to question, you always have to question the narratives of control that are embedded within religion and government and anything else, because there's always an element of control. When somebody said, you know, has to beat their chest and say, I'm the authority of this, and you have to, you have to, you have to agree to what I say or whatever else, really what ends up happening is, you, you have to question that and say, well, why are you, why are they doing that? What are they trying to do? So I look at the whole God and Satan thing and, and, and I, I, you know, I think it's a human problem, not a spirit problem. I think it's convenient for people to get terribly wrapped up and invested in this idea because for some people, it's a way for them to control other people. Right. I think one of the things too is human nature to look at things in a dualistic view. And we always, we do that with everything, good, bad, hot, cold. And it's just natural for us to look at it that way. However, I do think that if there's a supreme being, that supreme being is going to be above any type of dualistic view. And it's probably going to be more like a, some type of singularity. I would agree with that, you know. And, I mean, for all we know, that, that singularity could be the universe itself. Exactly. Um, how do you feel about things like reincarnation? Um, you know, I think reincarnation is possible. I know a lot of people get really hung up on the idea of a, of, you know, a past life kind of thing. And, and, you know, can I remember my past life and stuff like that? I've never been terribly interested in that. I kind of figure I'm here to live this life and do the work I need to do in this life. And if there's really anything important that I need to know about my past lives, then that'll be made apparent to me. And otherwise I just need to focus on being here and, and, and living now. So I'm not terribly invested in it, but I certainly think that reincarnation is possible. Do you think that near death experiences have the ability to change people's perspectives? Oh, I most definitely do. I mean, I've had a few near death experiences over the years and I can definitely tell you they do. I mean, they can be very transformative experiences um, because they really do get you to evaluate your life differently and they get you to kind of to look at things from a fresh perspective. And I'll tell you, there's, there is nothing more enjoyable than that first, that first meal or, or act of sex or whatever else after a near death experience, because you really appreciate it in a whole new light that you didn't before. How about that type of experience possibly opening a, psychic gateway to um being able to communicate with spirits um you know i think that that you know in my own experience with near-death experiences um i didn't i didn't feel like it already opened a psychic gateway i mean i already felt like that psychic gateway was open um it might have brought me closer to the spirit world in some ways and in interacting with the spirits but I don't know that I've ever really noticed an appreciable difference between quite honestly. No, I can't, I can't say that I have. And I've, I've had, a, like you said, I've had a few near death experiences, so it's not, or if it did, maybe it was that first near death experience I had. I was drowned when I was seven years old in the ocean and uh, 
you know, maybe that was it because, you know, that was that, that probably when I think about it was probably the, you know, it was after that time that I really did become start to become more interested in magic um, than anything else. So maybe that was it, that first near death experience and the ones after that just didn't really, you know, do anything else significantly. Um, because I had already had that initial experience. So, you know, but that was so long ago. I mean, I was seven years old that, you know, come to think of it, I guess, I mean, I guess that would be my answer that maybe it's that first near death experience. Maybe. What is retroactive magic? Is that like going back in time? Um, kind of, sort of. Um, it's not physically going back in time. I know some people are like, oh, can I travel back in time and, you know, change X, Y, and Z? You know, I haven't met any, I haven't met anyone who's a time traveler yet, or if, or if they are, they haven't, they aren't telling me. And um, I haven't been able to physically travel back in time. What retroactive magic is, is it's, it's the ability to work with the memories of an experience and to, ch and to change those memories so that you can, to change those memories in such a way that you change the present and future possibilities that are available for you. And the interesting thing is that when we, 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 we necessarily recognize that memory and imagination are actually one and the same. I mean, when you, you remember something, you're reimagining it. And when you imagine something, you're basically forecasting into the present or future. Um, so, you know, when you work with your memories, you can reimagine those memories and you can make changes in those memories. And, and sometimes, as a result, you can change the possibilities that are available to you in the present and future. It doesn't mean you've changed your past. It just means that you've, you've changed what your experience of that past was in order to change what's available to you in your present and future. Do you think astral projection is possible? Um, yeah, astral projection certainly is. Uh, you know, it's, it's certainly something that you can do if you want to, and there's some good books out there. Um, I'll admit I don't really do a lot with astral projection at this point in my magical practice. My, my astral projection is really, really consisted of creating um, something which is called the mansion of memory, which is a, you know, a technique where you basically cre create it for the purposes of memorizing things. I've modified it a bit. In my case, my mansion of memory basically is this huge mansion which has rooms in it, uh, one room dedicated to each discipline that I'm studying and learning about. And in each of those rooms is an avatar of myself that is actually focused on learning that information. And then when I need that information, that avatar brings that information to me. And I'm able to access that pretty much instantaneously. And that's basically the extent of my astral projection activities these days. But I know certainly other people do a fair amount with it. I, I prefer to ground my magic more in, in the physicality of, of my body. I think that there's something very powerful about embodying magic and making it a part of your physicality and making it a part of your being. I should try that mansion trick myself so I can remember when I have podcasts scheduled. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so um, we're getting ready to wrap this up. Would you like to um, talk about your website or and how to get your books and if there's anything else you want to cover? Sure. Um, my website is magicalexperiments.com. I also have a Facebook group, um, which you can join. And uh, it's got a very friendly and active community. You know, all are welcome. And we, we, we have some interesting conversations. And then as for my books, um, uh, you can get those books online on, at, at Amazon um, or on Barnes & Noble or Kobo or through other sites. And um, I've written over 27 books at this point. So you'll, you'll have a lot to read, including some fiction, too. So if you want to check out my fiction site, you can go to imagineyourreality.com but uh yeah check it all out and and hope to uh connect with you fine folks of some form or manner in the future awesome um is there any message that you'd like to pass on to my listeners some hope for humanity i think the best message that i could pass on to to all of you is just to be curious and question everything. Challenge what you know by discovering what you can learn. And don't, don't get invested in anyone's, anyone else's authority. That includes me, 
that includes any, any other person out there who's written a book or whatever else. I mean, you know, respect, respect somebody for what they have to offer. Sure. But remember you are your own authority and you have to come up, you have to be able to make your own decisions and, and discover for yourself the best path forward. That's, that's, you know, that's life. I think you might be asking a lot of certain people with that one. <laughs> you know what? If, 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 if I wasn't willing to ask it, I, I wouldn't be willing to ask it if I wasn't living it myself. Yeah. I and I mean, it's, 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 it's worth it to ask them to ask that much because that's how we bring out the best in ourselves. I have to agree. I have to agree. I think if more people followed their natural instinct rather than following the crowd, you would be in a totally different place. For sure. All right. Um, I want to thank you again for being on my podcast. I had, this was a great interview. And um, to my listeners, if anybody wants to be a guest or has any comments, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. The website is everythingimaginable2020.com. And I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, every other um, social media platform that you could possibly think of. And also you can buy my book, Enlightenment Guaranteed, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's on Amazon, only $3.99 for the Kindle edition. Um, and that's it. If um, I know I had some saying that I used to say at the end of my show and I forgot, I didn't write it down. <laughs> Uh, thank you for listening, folks, and have a great day.